Okay. Now, I want to, um, in this lecture, partly recap on some of the material for last week um, and related to what we're reading this week. Um, partly as, uh, as uh, tracing the development of Freud's thought, uh, because the lectures that I've asked you to read, lectures 17 and 18, <coughs> are about 20 years, uh, a bit maybe 20 odd years, 22, 3 years, after the papers from the 1890s that we were looking at. Okay? Uh, the date, they were published in 1915-16, and they were written in a year or so beforehand. So it's roughly about 20 years later. A lot has happened in that 20 years, um, but we, s we see Freud nevertheless going back to the notion of trauma uh, and thinking about it and, and uh, 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 relating to and citing some of the texts that we read last week. Um, uh, so though he's now got a highly developed psychoanalytical theory, which he didn't have um, in the early, with the early papers, uh, and to some extent, the notion of, of trauma, and certainly the notion of, of a necessary early infantile sexual trauma, has been displaced. Um, that's not to say that Freud denied that these things took place, um, but he gave it a different status, as it were, not the central, absolutely necessary cause for all forms of psychopathology. Yes, these things happen from time to time, but um, he's developed a whole theory of infantile sexuality, um, <coughs> which takes the place of, uh, to some extent, broadly speaking, um, the, the notion of early infantile sexual uh, seduction stroke abuse. Um, nevertheless, he goes back to trauma, and this pattern happens again and again throughout the whole of his intellectual career. Um, though he officially abandons the seduction theory, and we looked at that, I sent you that letter he wrote to Wilhelm Fleece, his, his co-thinker at the time, on September 21st, 1897, in which he says, I don't believe in my theory, I think I've got it wrong. Um, uh, and he gives four reasons for why he abandoned it. Um, it nevertheless lives on, as it were, it won't go away, uh, this notion of, 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 of the traumatic uh, and the puzzle uh, that it, uh, both a practical, clinical, human enigma that it, that it um, provides, uh, um, and um, the theoretical challenge as well that it also poses to him. Um, and even when he doesn't, in his later work, when he doesn't use the word trauma, um, he's still in a sense struggling with the experiences that get called traumatic. Um, and particularly some of the features that we looked at last week, the question of the time structure of trauma, uh, that puzzling way in which um, uh, we get this sort of backward and forward movement uh, in, in time. Um, and the notion of a, uh, and the kinds of repetition that are involved, just the, the attempt to understand what is happening when certain things uh, are repeated, um, unconsciously repeated, compulsively repeated. Uh, what you know? What what is happening here? Come in. Sorry. 
what is happening here in, in this form of, how do we understand this form of repetition? Because it's, it characterizes uh, again and again um, the conditions that uh, people bring to him. It also characterizes what happens in the session between the analyst and the analysand. Uh, and he formulates a whole theory about this. Around about the time he wrote these lectures, a theory of transference, that something is being uh, reactivated and repeated in the session between the analyst and the analysand. And we will be looking at that a bit later on in the course. Initially, he sees this as an obstacle and a bother and a distraction. And then he realizes, actually, this is why, it, this is why analysis works, if it does and when it does work, precisely because of this, this form of repetition. Um, and if we don't get this kind of repetition, then uh, the analysis won't work. Um, now, all that is, is, is thought about and reflected on um, without the word trauma being used. But, but it's this, he's, he's basically struggling with the same material. I mean, um, the same material and the same issues under slightly different conceptual headings. Um, that we saw uh, in, la in last week's paper. So I just want to s go over that a little bit. And then uh, if I've timed this rightly, I want to finish by uh, reading out uh, a sort of anthology of moments or scenes from the Hoffman tale, uh, novella Mademoiselle de Scudery, um, which is an uh, extraordinary text. We'll be looking at another one of his novellas in the same Penguin collection, Tales of Hoffman. Uh, next term as well, um, <coughs> and it, it, there, there's something quite uncanny about uh, the way in which Hoffman anticipates Freud uh, or certain aspects of Freudian thought. Uh, Hoffman was himself uh, 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 very knowledgeable in terms of the psychiatric literature of his period. Uh, he was a magistrate in the, in, in the Prussian um, judicial and uh, uh, penitential system, but he was also a composer of music, a writer of operas, um, somebody who, who produced operas and plays. Uh, he has a quite extraordinary um, career. Uh, <coughs> and, you know, a, a, you, I think even uh, a first reading through of Mademoiselle de Scudery uh, would make clear how strikingly um, convergent to, to in, in many ways, I don't want to say identical, uh, but convergent in many ways that the narrative and the narrative structure of that novella is with some of the issues that, that, that Freud addresses, um, you know, a hundred years later. So I want to, uh, and in particular, uh, that repetition in Hoffman um, is bound up with a, a characteristic of Freud's thought that um, again, I, I mentioned last week, and which is one of the reasons why um, psychoanalysis is a form of psychology that is of interest to literary and uh, cultural theorists and critics, etc. Uh, and that is the, the, the way in which Freud thinks in terms of scenes, okay? uh, in terms of a scenography, I'm calling, I'm calling using it, taking that term from film theory. Um, and applying it to Freud. Freud is a scenographer. Uh, he, or, you know, he, a metteur en scène, and to use the French phrase. Uh, rather, in the, you know, almost, again, certain parallels with uh, Hoffman's career. Um, so he, he, he maps scenes 
Um, he detects the presence of, uh, of, 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 a, of a kind of dramatic scenes at work um, behind the symptoms. Uh, <coughs> and he thinks scenically. Uh, and I think that's of great interest to us. Okay. Now, we looked at... Um, we started off thinking about uh, the moment where Freud, as it were, moves into uh, something like psychology, because uh, that's not where he started. You know, he started, as I said, very much trained in the materialist, physicalist tradition uh, <coughs> that was making uh, you know, discoveries in leaps and bounds in the late 19th century, particularly mapping the structure of the brain, the cerebral cortex, the spinal column, and the, uh, the, the, the nervous system, and the correlations between different parts of the body, uh <coughs> and the emergence of a new science like that of neurology. Uh, and the great neurologist of the period was Charcot, whom Freud goes to study with. Um, and he comes away from that brief period he spent in Paris with Charcot, as it were. He didn't give up neurology. He wrote a huge amount of, of stuff in German that's never been translated into English, precisely on the structure of infant children's and infants' brains and uh, the forms of, uh, of brain illness that um, small children are prone to, etc. But he, becomes, he comes away from Paris committed to, uh, initially, uh, a very Charcotian vision of um, <coughs> something that's increasingly understood in psychological terms. And in particular, the two categories that are at issue in, the, in what Freud takes from Charcot are those of trauma and hysteria. How do these two categories relate to each other? Um, and I suggested that um, Charcot explains what we today would call post-traumatic stress disorder by extending the, the then very dominant category of hysteria and saying, uh, when you get uh, these post-traumatic um, uh, effects uh, after accidents, particularly physical accidents, say, and the symptom only develops weeks, even months later, rather than immediately as an obviously effect of physical damage, um, <coughs> then that's a form of hysteria. And this is a very controversial move to make. A lot of people would completely uh, and aggressively reject that. Um, and his reason for doing that was because he was opening up a space within uh, his new science of neurology for something that we would call psychology. That is to say, the place of ideas and particularly dissociated ideas. Uh, and he demonstrates through the hypnotic um, uh, exhibitions and uh, demonstrations in his, his public lectures uh, the way in which symptoms that were thought of as being uh, <coughs> more or less uh, the, the effect of damage, physical damage to the nervous system even if the damage was forms of lesion that were almost micro, you couldn't easily detect them or find them, that these were idea-based. Uh, and that's what he demonstrates in his lectures through his famous hi hypnotic um, exhibitions and demonstrations. Um, so dissociated ideas which uh, are out of control of the ego but are still in some sense in the mind. Uh, of which the ego is unaware, and which have an effect on the body, particularly in the production of bodily symptoms. And the, that's one thing Freud takes from Charcot. And the second thing he takes from Charcot is this emphasis on, uh, uh, on scenes. 
in Charcot's, he describes the four stages of Charcot's model of the famous hysterical attack in that, Breuer, that paper with Breuer that he co-writes with Breuer. Um, and it's that third stage of the development of the hysterical attack which Charcot calls attitude passionnelle. Uh, Freud translates it as something like scenes of passionate movement uh, where something is being acted out in a delirium. Uh, speeches are often being made, actions are, actions are engaged in, etc. And that notion of a scene uh, uh, and of dissociated ideas are the two key elements of Charcot's work that Freud takes uh, over and develops. The result is, in a way, he, he, he then builds the connection between trauma and hysteria differently uh, from the way Charcot does, where Charcot uh, absorbs the whole realm of, of post-traumatic accidents and their belated and postponed after-effects under the heading of hysteria, because hysteria deals with um, uh, idiogenic, the production of idiogenic symptoms on the basis of dissociated ideas that, that affect the body. Um, Freud makes a move in the opposite direction in a way. He takes the whole field of hysterias and says what we have to look for, not just with uh, obvious traumatic hysteria as a result of physical violence or physical accidents, but what was called constitutional hysteria, inherited predispositions to hysteria. And we have to look for the trauma. What's the traumatic experience that is, uh, that is being, um, uh, which is not being remembered, but is nevertheless somehow or other being expressed or acted out? Um, and increasingly, uh, he, he pushes aside and then uh, attempts entirely to exclude from the field of explanation the notion of uh, a kind of hereditary disposition to hysteria or whatever else it might be. Um, and in, as one reads through his texts, you can see that he's um, pushing the notion of a hereditary disposition more and more and more to one side. He then attempts to describe uh, what one would call um, a kind of virtual reality, the virtual reality of certain kinds of repetition. So that when he's looking for the cause behind a symptom, it's not, it's not something that is in the remote past that you then have to, as it were, uh, through a purely cognitive effort, um, try to force yourself to remember. It's rather something that is active in the present now. Okay? Uh, it's, it's a present reality of which the subject is unconscious, but, 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 which, and the subject, but nevertheless the subject is caught up in um, this, this, this event, this action uh, in the present. So there's something in the present that becomes active in certain moments. Um, uh, and it's puzzling to try and understand what status to give to give to this. Uh, and ex you know, I, I gave you that lecture, and, uh, sorry, that letter, and uh, I commented on it in the lecture last week, uh, where it's the most elaborate description um, uh, that I've read um, in some ways, though it's, it's not exactly analyzed, but he, he, he draws an inference from it, um, of the young woman who comes into analysis and gives him a memory of that something that she saw as a small child. She goes into a darkened room and there is her mother and her mother's acting out in this very strange way. Um, 
and she notices certain things about her mother's behavior and she's clearly being haunted by this strange scene as her mother calls out and cries out and she's by herself in a darkened room uh, and uh, she describes in a very detailed way the mother's physical postures and gestures uh, which she never understood um, and Freud thinks he does understand them that she is in fact the mother has herself repeating a scene of traumatic sexual assault that took place somewhere else, another scene uh, that is, as it were, off stage, um, and which gets to Freud via this strange process of transmission uh, from the mother's fixated compulsive repetition of the, of the trauma of, of sexual assault by, by uh, the father, um, uh, relayed through the vivid attention but incomprehension of the small child, which is then remembered by the adult daughter and then transmitted to Freud. And it's that structure of, of postponement or deferral or transmission uh, of, a, of a scene uh, and, in which the person transmitting it has no direct awareness of what it is they're transmitting, I think, that is really very striking. And one gets that, that, that sense of a palimpsest, of one thing, a scene, um, uh, written over or imposed upon another one, imposed upon another one, etc. And that's what we were looking at in the seminars last week when we looked at the various case studies of Katerina and Miss Lucy uh, and Emma. So something is being repeated uh, and it's bound up with affect or feeling. As Freud says, recollection without affect has no, has no effect, <coughs> no effect. Um, it's bound up with what I, I'm tempted to call a sort of toxic afterlife of intense feelings. Uh, <coughs> and so the, the strange way in which certain scenes repeat and live on outside the conscious memory of the subject is bound up with um, the intensity of certain affects. Uh, and indeed, the definition of trauma as it shifts from a discourse of physical medicine to... to um, psychological medicine, as it were, um, <coughs> is about uh, the, uh, uh, the swamping, uh, the uh, uh, overwhelming of the subject by certain intense excitations and intense feelings that, uh, that have taken the subject by surprise, taken them off guard, it's something they were not expecting. Um, and Freud later on makes a distinction in the text we'll be looking at next term between three different but often confused mental conditions or states, fear, anxiety, and fright. Uh, he says, fear is fear of a specific object. You know what you're frightened of. Um, anxiety um, is highly mobile. It may attach itself to a range of different objects. But you know there's something frightening, worrying, uh, whatever it might be. Okay. But it's not, attached to, a, it's not attached to a fixed object. It's the mobility of anxiety which can, which can travel from object to object to object. But at least the person who's feeling anxious is alerted to a danger, even if they don't know what it is. Okay. Fright, uh, the third condition Freud talks about, is something that's the result of being taken by surprise. Uh, uh, where you, do, you weren't expecting something uh, and your defences and your, your uh, guard has been is not operating or has been dropped um, and therefore 
you, you are unable psychologically to fend off or prepare yourself for uh, whatever the uh, overwhelming um, uh, event might be. Um, so fright uh, and uh, the unpreparedness of the subject uh, are, are conditions for this um uh, for this kind of repetition uh, that will that will kick in at a later point, um, the other key element, and it takes Freud a while to see quite how central it is, is the notion of defence. <coughs> so it's not just a question of, of an intense swamping or overwhelming uh, uh, of the subject psychologically, um, but the way in which uh, the subject attempts to cope with that. Um, and it's usually a panic reaction, a panic reaction that it seeks to block it out, to, to, to push it out of consciousness. Uh, and this is this, this particular form of defense Freud calls repression. Uh, and he sees it as being a, a pathological defense mechanism initially. It's what people do uh, uh, in certain, in certain uh, traumatic situations when they can't cope uh, and, they, and they're unprepared for what's hit them. Uh, <coughs> so a breaking into and a breaking open of psychological boundaries, just as physical trauma, uh, going back to the Greek word for wound or, or some uh, a rupture or breaking of the body's boundaries and surfaces. So psychical trauma is this, is, is this swamping, uh, an invasion of the subject by, uh, by fear, anxiety, and a set of intense feelings attached to some danger or threat. But it's the question of, what, of how, this, how that is processed or not processed that determines the production <coughs> of a symptom. Um, and Freud increasingly becomes aware that it's not just uh, a question of finding the trauma, but of trying to reconstruct the defense that was brought into play against that, um, against that overwhelming trauma. And gradually, you know, uh, the model develops both in, in, in terms of the time structure uh, of the process, the realization that it's unlike physical trauma where it's the violent impact in a single moment on the body, um, with the kind of psychical trauma that he's engaged, engaged with, uh, it's a question of uh, an interaction between different events. Initially, he assumes that the moment in which the symptom uh, first appeared must have been that must be the causal moment. But it very quickly becomes aware uh, because of the, the, the incongruity or disproportion between uh, uh, the circumstances that the person comes to remember uh, as the first time the symptom appeared and the symptom itself, um, that there's something missing, there's something else. Uh, 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 and increasingly he is pushed further and further back into the history of the individual. Some, the, so the moment that seemed to be the traumatic moment, the moment where the symptom first appeared, uh, is actually uh, the end, uh, not, uh, is, as it were, the beginning of a process of discovery. It's, it's not the, ah, now I've found the cause. It's reactivated something else, an X, which is a crucial precondition uh, for the trauma to happen in the, f in the first place, for the traumatic symptom to happen in the first place. So gradually, the time structure uh, of the, of, the of the explanation gets more and more complex as scene behind scene behind scene 
gradually uh, is discovered and, uh, and, and worked through, as it were. So a particular kind of temporality, which is not just the sort of forward movement following the arrow of time into the future, uh, but uh, as well as deferral and postponement, there is also the sort of regression and uh, reactivation or, uh, uh <coughs> of something in the past, in the present. under certain conditions. Now, at, at the end of um, that early paper with Breuer, he ends up saying, you know, the title of the paper is that on the psychical mechanism of historical symptoms. I think we can now understand how these symptoms are produced, but I can't stop them. Uh, just as the case with Miss Luciar, you know, he works through this smell she has tormented by when she can't smell anything else uh, because of her nasal condition, but she's tormented by the smell of, of burnt pudding. Um, uh, and then he works through a set of associations and memories around that, and she goes away, and then she comes back uh, sometime later and says, well, I've got another smell now, you know, and then she, that has to be worked through. And the end of that paper is a kind of rather rueful um, statement that, well, uh, I could read it out. Th there's a limit to what I can, I can explain um, <coughs> yes, <coughs> he says, he thinks he's worked out how these symptoms are formed. Um, he says uh, uh, that the, the working through process in the analysis brings to an end the operative force of an idea which was not, in his technical term, abreacted, or um, abreaction is something like catharsis which was not abreacted in the first instance by allowing its strangulated affect to find a way through speech. And, it's su and it's, it subjects this affect to associative correc a correction by introducing it into normal consciousness uh, or removing it through the physician's suggestion, etc. Okay, he thinks he understands that, but then he says, in our opinion, the therapeutic advantages of this procedure are considerable. It is, of course, true that we do not cure hysteria insofar as it is a matter of disposition. We can do nothing against the recurrence of hypnoid states. Uh, our procedure cannot prevent the phenomena which have been so laboriously removed from being replaced by fresh ones. So he's got so far, but there's some underlying condition. At this point, well, maybe it's hereditary, He's more and more sceptical about th that. Um, so there's this other thing, this X, uh, that, that, that is, has to be described and explored. Uh, now, in the 1896 paper we looked at, the further remarks, which ends up with the story of the paranoid woman, um, <coughs> he thinks he's got it. He goes through this period and thinking, what it is is this, uh, is a, is a a, a, an experience of sexual uh, seduction or even aggressive or violent abuse in, the, in a very early pre-puberty period. Um, and that's the X, that's what he thinks, that's, that's what it is. That's, it's not hereditary at all, not heredity at all. Um, it's this very, very early um, violent sexual inscription of, of the uh, asexual infant or young child's body. Um, that, that is the, uh, the earliest precondition. Um, and that takes the place of heredity. 
uh, and it's a, it's a, a partial solution, uh, and he, he can never quite be sure that he's right. Uh, I gave you a, a, a letter of, uh, to Fleece in which, um, at the moment in, in September 97, where he says, I don't think I believe this anymore. There are all these reasons why, um, and he, he lists four reasons um, uh, that, he, that analyses that he thought were coming to a conclusion suddenly seem inconclusive because uh, they keep discovering more and more material um, uh, and the symptoms keep coming back. So where he thought he'd had a clinical success uh, and then the patient comes back and, you know, uh, and there's, another, there's another cycle of symptom production. Um, there's also, the, there's also uh, and this is more puzzling, uh, he says it's always the question of the father. Uh, not, e not excluding my own, because of course he's involved in a self-analysis at this point. Uh, and uh, uh, so there's the question of the father as, as, the, uh, as the sexual agent. Um, uh, and he's saying, could this be possible? Uh, 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 he says, uh, the unexpected frequency of hysteria with precisely the same conditions prevailing in each case, whereas surely such widespread perversions against children are not probable. So, and he makes a kind of epidemiological inference. If, um, if we have a population of hysterics, which is X percentage of the general population, people who turn up with hysterical symptoms, etc., then there must have been an even larger percentage of people who have, who have been um, subjected to that kind of uh, uh, early sexual assault, in effect, uh, because it's not just that that causes the symptom, but the, de the defensive blockage and processing and failure to process uh, the, uh, the, the, the initial experience. Um, some people process it and actually remember it, um, and it may, it, it may cause disturbing um, uh, distre distress and disturbing uh, feelings sometimes for the rest of their lives, but, it, but it's something they have consciously addressed. Whereas hysteria is bound up with this moment of not knowing, <coughs> of acting out and not knowing. And we saw that, didn't we, with the Katerina case, which is the simplest case. Right? The moment she looks through the window and she sees what is in effect her father um, uh, and maybe her cousin or maybe her sister Francesca lying together on a bed uh, and she, is, uh, she has a hysterical attack, breathlessness, um, suffocation, uh, uh, and then violent vomiting. And when Freud says, well, what are, you, what are you disgusted at? She says, I don't know. I couldn't see anything. So she has a violent reaction to something that, she, that completely escapes her conscious perception and understanding. Um, so the hysterical symptom or attack and not knowing are like two sides of the same coin. It's, very, it's, it's the specificity of, 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 um, of, of hysteria. Uh, in which something is, in the term he uses again and again, that's specific to hysteria, is conversion, hysterical conversion. Whatever it is, is acted out through the production of bodily symptoms, and the subject doesn't know um, and can't tell you what it is that they're reacting to, but they're violently reacting through the body. Uh, <coughs> so, uh, so there must have been an even larger population of people who have been subjected to this, right, who, who, who don't produce historical symptoms. Uh, could that be possible? You know, he's, he's, he's a sceptical question he raises about his own theory. Uh, and then he says, very interestingly from our point of view, his third reason is um, 
there is the insight that he has gained that there are no indications of reality in the unconscious so that one cannot distinguish between truth and fiction, which has been affected, that technical term, charged with affect, with feeling. How do I know that the scenes that are being acted out or that are being verbalized um, are actual, uh, accurate reproductions of an event that took place, or are they fantasy? Are they fictions that are charged with intense feeling? Um, that sexual fa fantasy invariably seizes upon the theme of the parents. How do I know? How do I know what status to give these things that are being acted out? Um, and his fourth objection to his own theory is the consideration that in the most deep-reaching psychosis, the unconscious memory does not break through, so that the secret of childhood experiences is not disclosed, even in the most confused delirium. If one thus sees that the unconscious never overcomes the resistance of the conscious. The expectation that in treatment the opposite is bound to happen to the point where the unconscious is completely tamed by the conscious also diminishes. So he thinks, I failed. You know, uh, I, you know, I'm, back, I'm back to where I started. Uh, he says, um, I haven't got a complete resolution to the problem of neurosis. Um, I have not succeeded in gaining a theoretical understanding of repression and the forces behind it. It seems again arguable that only later experiences give the impetus to fantasies, which then hark back to childhood, and with this factor, a hereditary disposition regains the sphere of influence from which I had made it my task to dislodge it. So he's in a kind of state of theoretical crisis. Uh, uh, at that, when he writes that letter in September '97, and what's Fascinating is that the, uh, the, see, the um, letter I talked about last week, which I've described uh, a bit earlier in this lecture, of the small girl watching her mother and remembering it again in adulthood when she goes into analysis, that happens after the so-called abandonment of his seduction theory. In other words, he goes, he's drawn back again and again to these, um, to these scenes that his patients keep producing. Um, so... The, 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 the significance of that is in part that even when Freud uh, turns away from um, the, the model of sexual trauma, um, it doesn't leave him alone, as it were. It becomes like a th almost like the theoretical unconscious of psychoanalysis. Uh, it's something that keeps coming back and that keeps haunting him. So that's why 20 years later, in uh, these lectures we're looking at, it, he turns back again. Uh, in the interim, he's built a whole theory of infantile sexuality, but he still um, turns back to this notion of trauma and a fixation to a trauma and the forms of repetition that take place. And he, in, and he gives us some quite interesting distinctions to think about because the, all the instances in this week's papers are not hysteria. They're another, uh, they're another neurotic condition of obsessional neurosis. And they have a different... Uh, stru structure from the structure of hysteria, where in hysteria, uh, bodily conversion, the conversion of, of affect um, into, bo uh, into bodily symptoms is, is what is characteristic. Um, in obsessional neurosis, what's ca what is absolutely central to it is um, the appearance, the, the, the the experience of self-reproaches uh, attached to intense experiences in the past, um, 
self-reproaches that uh, are then uh, uh, defended against in various ways, um, and uh, a proliferating system of defenses that just multiply against uh, very intense feelings uh, that are felt to be bad, shameful, wrong, uh, the subject of, 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 of self-criticism and self-reproach, uh, and a whole elaborate system of precautions and um, ceremonial, sleep ceremonials of the kinds he describes um, are one of the commonest expressions of, uh, of obsessional neurosis, uh, in which an attempt to control a limited space in which you can actually go to sleep, because when you're asleep, you drop your defences, and God knows what could happen then, <laughs> okay, um, uh, if, when, you're, when you're unconscious and when you're asleep. So all kinds of, as it were, magical and, and symbolic things have to be put in place. Pillows have to be in a certain pattern or arrangement. Um, you know, in the case of one of the uh, women talked about, um, she, no vases, nothing that could break, uh, can be allowed to stay in the bedroom. No clocks that might tick, uh, uh, because she can't bear the slightest noise, except we're told she insists that the room, the door between her bedroom and her parents' bedroom must be kept open, okay, which contradicts the notion, of course, that she can't tolerate a single noise. Um, so uh, you see this extraordinary elaborate system, and as Freud quite rightly says, she torments her parents with this, elab with this proliferating system of precautions and defences and ceremonials before she can possibly go to sleep at night. Um, and it, of course it ends in the extraordinary um, <laughs> detail one's told that he, she's, she's in her, uh, she's, she's not a child anymore, um, she's, she's at least in her teens, um, and she gets her parents to agree to, as it were, moving over and giving her a place in the parental bed. And you might think, oh, well, daddy goes and sleeps in another room and she shares the bed with mother. Oh, no. <laughs> it's mother that's moved out of the parental bed and she shares the parental bed with her father. And you think, how on earth did the parents ever get to agree to that arrangement? Okay. So the, 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 dorm, the dominance of the, this woman's obsessional structure, you know, sort of sucks in, sucks in her, her, her family as well, it becomes a kind of tyranny in the household. Okay, um, <coughs> so Freud's interested then in exploring uh, the differences between hysteria and obsessional neurosis, particularly in relation to the question of memory, okay, and what, what, the, what the obsessional subject is conscious of and what they're not conscious of. And it's a very different situation from, um, from uh, hysteria, where Freud says large wholesale amnesia is, is characteristic of of classical hysterical um, symptoms, symptomologies, whereas uh, obsessional subjects will often say, oh, well, yes, I know that. I always knew that. They haven't forgotten. They just don't see the connection. So it's not that the, uh, the crucial scene uh, in the case of the first woman, uh, the, the failed marriage night and the humiliation of that sexual failure on, of the husband on the, uh, on the marriage night, um, or um, <coughs> something mu much more complicated um, uh, is being uh, gestures towards in the second case. Um, but Freud summarised it as, a, as an erotic fixation on the father. Um, it's not there tied to a particular, but a particular scene. Uh <coughs> though I guess it might have been um, if if that had been explored further. Um, so. The first woman says she remembers perfectly well what happened on her marriage night. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a 
something of shame and, and pain and distress to her, etc. She doesn't see the connection. So it's a, it's a way in which certain experiences are not repressed in that classic sense, banished from consciousness, but they are sidelined, disconnected, um, uh, and, and as it were, trivialized in some way or re rendered unimportant. Uh, so the connection isn't seen. Now, Freud makes a useful uh, distinction between uh, what our translation calls the whence and the whither of the, of the obsessional symptom. Okay. Where does it come from? Where is it going to? Where is it, what, where does it come from? I, I, what experience, uh, particularly what um, uh, traumatic emotional experience might lie behind uh, the, um, the obsessional symptom? Well, the scene, the scene can be remembered if the person uh, uh, if the person can only find their way to it, you know, it's not been repressed. Um, but what the subject is unconscious of is what it is they're doing uh, in repeating some version of that experience. The, the wither, where is it going to? What is the intention of the obsessional subject uh, in, in repeating the symptom? And that's what the subject is unconscious of. Okay. Um, <coughs> so these are sort of like different mental strategies that the kind of panic-ridden ego adopts uh, in relationship to different kinds of overwhelming and distressing experiences. Now I'm going to um, move on to Hoffman. I don't know if, if, the, if people want to ask any questions or make any comments on the material I've gone over. Things that you find confusing or you feel you haven't quite got a grip on. No? Okay, maybe we can uh, <coughs> raise that again in the, in the seminars this afternoon. Um, okay, uh, now I want to um, really just draw your attention to certain scenes or moments in this very complex, almost broke narrative structure that Hoffman has produced for his, his great novella. Um, there's, an, there's an unnamed narrator. Um, and if you just think of something of the, of, the, of the narrative structure of it, it begins with this scene of violence, commotion, uh, and somebody attempting to break into or burst into the locked house of Mademoiselle de Scudery herself. Okay. We don't know who it is. We don't know the, the relationship between these people, uh, except there's this voice in the middle of the night suddenly banging on the door, uh, and uh, uh, Martiniere, the, um, the, the, the uh, uh, Mademoiselle de Scudery's companion and um, uh, housekeeper, uh, is traumatized and she thinks, oh my God, it's, it's all these terrible things have been happening in Paris and it's these violent robbers who are trying to burst into the house. Uh, but she's, uh, the, 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 the young man outside manages to talk her into letting him in, but then he still looks very uh, aggressive and violent and um, she calls for help. Uh, he's unable to get through to Mademoiselle de Scudery. So he just deposits something, a box, a mysterious box, it is to be opened at a later point, uh, as it were. Uh, and then he flees the scene. 
Uh, and so that's, that's the opening. Uh, the opening begins with this scene of eruption violence and then the deposit of something, something in a box that Madame de Scuderie will, will, will open and, uh, and look at. Uh, so the jewels make their entrance, as it were, uh, in, into the narrative in a, in a quite dramatic way. Um, and then we, we move to something completely different. We then get this odd frame narrative of, meanwhile, in Paris, all sorts of strange things had been happening around about the same time. Uh, and then we then get this very, very detailed, um, uh, uh, apparently unrelated narrative of uh, almost generations of poisoners that have been poisoning uh, their relatives, uh, very often, uh, in aristocratic upper-class society in Paris of the late 17th century. Um, and we get a whole list of names. Uh, we get almost a genealogy by which the secrets of poisoning have been transmitted uh, from one set of poisoners to another set of poisoners. Um, we get the uh, setting up of a special uh, uh, court, the Chambre Ardente, uh, and the empowerment of certain figures, La Rigny and De Grey, who will become, I mean, it's almost like the first detective novel, um, uh, who are going to be empowered to hunt down uh, these mysterious figures who have been uh, bringing death uh, and murder into the most intimate spaces of the of family life. Uh, and then, uh, by an odd transition, we suddenly get into this story of uh, Cardiac, René Cardiac, the great jeweler. Okay. And we're on another narrative tack. <laughs> um, uh, so this is odd segue, sideways segueing movement. Um, and we then get uh, the, the, the account of the, ju the jewels that were in the box, um, the message that came, came with them, uh, and uh, an account of uh, another uh, set of events have been taking place uh, of uh, spectacular murders and robbery of jewellery. Um, okay, now, what I, if I've got time, what I want to do is just read out uh, three scenes uh, that, I, that, that through this uh, quite complex narrative uh, <coughs> are woven in. Um, now, the first one is on page 26. Uh, of the of the penguin narrative, um, and it's around the question of jewelry because it, it all turns about around jewelry, and the jewels circulate uh, between different people, uh, and uh, the meaning of what the jewels might might and, and, and the affective burden or that they might carry can only be as it were worked out by thinking about in what circumstances do these jewels circulate, how do they function. Okay, uh, <coughs> so the bottom of page 25 going on to 26, uh, we get one of these, you know, these segues. Trouble of another sort now appeared to spread fresh consternation in Paris. A gang of thieves appeared to have set themselves the task of acquiring all the jewellery in Paris, and they were not hesitating to commit murder in pursuit of this aim. Those fortunate enough to escape with their life deposed that a blow from a fist had knocked them down and that when they came round they found they had been robbed and were in a place quite different from where they had received the blow. The bodies discovered almost every morning in the streets or within houses all bore the same death wound, a dagger thrust to the heart, which, according to the doctors, must have killed so quickly 
and surely that the victim, incapable of making a sound, must have dropped to the ground at once. In the voluptuous court of Louis XIV, there were many who, entangled in some amorous intrigue, crept to their mistress in the night, often bearing a rich gift. But often, too, the lover failed to reach the house where he anticipated enjoyment. Sometimes he fell on the threshold, sometimes even before his mistress's door, who, horror-stricken, found his body in the morning. Okay, so that's quite a dramatic scene. Okay, the body of the male lover found outside the mistress's door uh, and the jewels missing. Okay, again and again, it's a repeated um, uh, discovery that happens. Uh, okay, so what's happening here? Um, a repeated scene, quite a dramatic one, uh, in which jewellery and murder feature. We then get a set of narratives within narratives within narratives. Uh, <coughs> and and it, uh, like a Chinese box, one narrative nested in another. Uh, so we've got the, the anonymous narrator, uh, we've got um, the figure of Olivier Brusson, um, uh, who tells something, a, a, a narrative to Mademoiselle de Scudery in the hope she, she will help him because he's being accused of being the murderer. Um, uh, and he tells to her a story that Cardiac had told to him. Uh, and Cardiac's story is again uh, a narrative transmission because though he was there at the time, he was actually there in the form of a fetus in his mother's womb. Uh, and so he had to have been told the narrative himself we don't know by who, perhaps by his mother, perhaps not by his mother, um, but by somebody. So he's in, though he was a fetus at the time, he's in possession of a narrative account of the experience that he and uh, in his mother's womb and his mother underwent. Uh, and that's then relayed um, uh, to Mademoiselle de Scudery and to us, uh, the reader. Um, and I'll just read out that extraordinary paragraph, uh, which is on... Um, page 63. Yes, okay. So this is Cardiac speaking to uh, his apprentice who wants to marry his daughter, Madelon, uh, Olivier Brusson, who has discovered his secret because he's seen him disappear through the wall. Um, uh, after one of the murders. Okay, so Cardiac says, wise men often speak of the strange impressions which afflict pregnant women and of the strange influence these impressions from outside can have on the child. I have been told a strange story about my mother. So perhaps it wasn't the mother who told him. Somebody's told him. Uh, in the first month in which she was pregnant with me, well, that's pretty early on, isn't it? Uh, she was together with other women watching a brilliant court festival in the Trianon. There her glance fell on a cavalier in Spanish dress with a glittering bejeweled chain about his neck from which she could scarcely tear her eyes away. Her whole being lusted after the sparkling stones which seemed to her some heavenly treasure. Several years earlier, before my mother was married, this same cavalier had laid snares for her virtue but had been rejected with horror. My mother recognized him, but this time he seemed to her, in the gleam of the sparkling diamonds, a being of a higher kind, the embodiment of everything beautiful. 
The cavalier noticed my mother's longing, fiery glances. Believing he might now be more fortunate, he found a way of approaching her, of enticing her away to a lonely place. There he clasped her passionately in his arms. My mother grasped the beautiful chain, but at the same instant he fell and dragged my mother with him to the ground. Whether it was a sudden heart attack or some other cause, suffice it to say that he was dead. My mother's efforts to free herself from the stiffened arms of the corpse were vain. His hollow eyes, their sight extinguished, fixed upon her, the dead man rolled on the ground with her. Her cries for help at last reached some distant passers-by who hurried to her and rescued her from the arms of her gruesome lover. And he comments, the horror of it threw my mother onto a sick bed. She and I were given up for lost, yet she recovered, and her delivery was better than anyone could have hoped for. But the fear of that terrible moment had gotten into me. And he then, uh, and this is his, um, his, as it were, his explanation of, of his obsession, his, his obsessional uh, murderous uh, behavior. The final scene I just want to to, uh, in, in this anthology of scenes uh, that I want to bring very much to your attention. Um, again, it's, it's got a very indirect um, narrative connection to the solution of the story. Um, <coughs> but it's very vivid. It's very powerful. It's almost in excess of its, of, of its ostensible narrative connection. Okay, this is on page 78. Um, and it's all about how the king won't talk, is so angry and upset about this whole question of cardiac and Olivier Brousson, and, uh, et cetera, that he won't even discuss it with anybody. So it's impossible to, to get him to, to make an appeal to him, which is what she wants to do. Um, and so we're told, after lengthy meditation, Mademoiselle de Scudery came to a decision and put it quickly into execution. She clad herself in a black dress of heavy silk, adorned herself with cardiac's jewels, draped a long black veil over her shoulders, and appeared in this fashion in the apartments of Madame Maintenon at the hour when the king was present there. The noble figure of the worthy lady in this solemn garb possessed a majesty calculated to awaken awe, even in those idle people used to drifting aimlessly in anterooms. Everyone stepped aside, and as she entered, even the king stood up, amazed, and came towards her. The diamonds of the necklace and bracelets flashed before his eyes, and he cried, By heaven, that is Cardiac's jewelry. Then turning to Madame Maintenon with a smile, he added, Look, Madame Marquise, how our beautiful bride grieves for her bridegroom. Nay, gracious lord, Mademoiselle de Scudery said, as if continuing the joke, how would it become a grief-stricken bride to bejewel herself so magnificently? No, I have severed all connection with that goldsmith, and would think no more of him did not the horrible sight of his body, borne past me, appear from time to time before my eyes. Okay, so another rather extraordinarily graphic scene. Um, <coughs> I'll leave you to think about those scenes as a way uh, into the kind of traumatic scenography of, uh, of Hoffman's novella, uh, and we'll uh, consider those in detail in the seminars.